Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Malicious hackers will always be quick to exploit flaws in applications, and the cost of attacks based on zero days is significant. The complexity of modern software and the pressure for rapid development means that security is not always a top priority. Too often, security testing comes late in the process, leaving vulnerabilities that have to be patched. Worse still, they can go undetected, and insecure software is put into production. Ideally, developers would build security in from the outset, and there's growing awareness of the need to include security much earlier in the development process, or to shift left, as some commentators call it, rather than relying on testing and scanning before release. Our guest this week can see the argument from both sides. Stephen DeVries started his career as a software developer, but in 2014 he started to work on Arius Risk, a threat modelling tool which aims to identify potential vulnerabilities even before developers start writing code. He's now the founder and CEO of the firm by the same name. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Stephen. Uh, delighted to be here. So tell us a bit about your background then. You were a software developer originally, and then you moved into information security. So how did you come to make the move? And also, perhaps more importantly, what lessons did you bring with you from the developer space? Yeah, so I um, I started my career as a C developer in 1998, uh, working on fixing the Y2K bug back then um, on, on banking systems. And then, you know, through my career, I, I was working with a colleague who was involved in Linux and installing firewalls. And I thought that was some interesting work that he was doing. Um, so I kind of made the switch within a job there and then uh, went on to start installing firewalls in, in South Africa. You can maybe detect a slight South African accident there. Um, so yeah, my, I kind of cut my teeth in security in infrastructure, um, installing firewalls, then scanning systems using internet security systems uh, scanning tool to try and find vulnerabilities. And then worked my way up through consulting, um, worked mostly with, you know, uh, UK FTSE 100 companies, um, but in, in a consulting capacity, doing penetration testing, uh, doing training for developers. And, you know, it was in that penetration, penetration testing area that I really kind of saw the value of having a development background because as soon as we started testing applications and particularly web apps and mobile apps, having that insight into what was the developer trying to do with this particular function and in which ways could they have made mistakes, that kind of insight was really helpful to to finding security um, issues there. Um, you know, to your second question around what did I bring from the, the developer world, I think I think the most valuable thing I um, I learned was that security is really a subset of what a developer needs to worry about. And when I moved into the security industry, I got I got the sense that security tends to uh, view itself as, as, as the most important um, aspect of, uh, of engineering or the most important aspect of, of the business. And often it's not, you know, and particularly with development. Um, the business is there to build an application. They need to get this application live. Um, it needs to be secure. It needs to be performant. It needs to function the way it should function. So all of these aspects of, of, of the application are important aspects but security is just one of those aspects. 
Um, and uh, I think one of the moments that, that, you know, one of those aha moments you have was uh, when I discovered a book in, in early 2000s on unit testing. So I was already in the security space and I found out, you know, what, what is this unit testing that, that software developers were talking about? And it was really a a way of taking another discipline, which was quality engineering, and pulling it into the developer workflow so that developers started doing their own type of quality testing, but in their code. Um, and I immediately thought, you know, why aren't we doing this for security? Why aren't we writing tests for security aspects within the, within the code itself? And that has kind of followed me through my career. I'm always trying to pull security into the uh, into the development uh, workflow and that's uh, very similar to what we're trying to do with with Arius risk at the moment so how big a problem is the the fact that software is being released with design and security flaws it's a huge problem so um, <laughs> uh, the the problem is really stems from I think engineers not not even thinking about security when they start building a very complex system. And we've been building complex things for a long time, you know, in the worlds of mechanics, in the, in the world of, of architecture, of, of physical structures. These are complex projects with lots of moving parts. And fundamental to all of them is a design aspect. There's, a, there's a, an activity of design where there's an architect, there's an engineer who says, well, this is what we plan to build. And now we're going to execute on that plan. And when I think about the, the kinds of complex systems that we're building um, from, a, you know, from an information system perspective, applications, cloud-based systems, a lot of that is being done without adequate planning and thinking about security at, uh, at the design phase. So when I think about how big the problem is, I, th I think it's almost difficult to measure because we don't know what we don't know. Um, and when it comes to architecture security, we're really not very clear on what have we deployed? How have we deployed it? Um, you know, are all these pieces talking together the way they should be or are we just running scanners against them and we're getting few results back so everything must be okay? The conventional process then of writing an application, releasing it, doing testing and scanning for vulnerabilities, is that no longer working in your view or no longer viable? I think it's an essential process. You, 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 we need to be doing that, right? We need to be running tests on our application. Um, the piece that's missing is what are we testing and why are we testing it? So, you know, when you've got a predefined set of security tests that are generic across all applications and you would launch these sets of tests against every single type of application, what you're essentially establishing is a minimum baseline of the obvious things we know should go wrong should not be in those applications. And that's absolutely valid. We should do that. Um, what we're not testing is what are the security requirements for my particular application and how would I go and test if each of those requirements are being met or not. So taking a step back and looking at the unique characteristics of my particular app and understanding the security context and the security requirements of, of, of my application is the piece that's missing. And if we're not doing that, we're just essentially testing into 
into a black box. We're just throwing stuff against the wall and, and seeing what sticks. So I suppose actually we don't know what percentage of applications are re- being released with the floor in them. Absolutely, correct. And if you don't do this exercise, if you don't think about security, if you don't analyze the application for these kinds of architectural security flaws, you, you wouldn't know. So there are a number of ways this is being looked at. So pen testing is the obvious one, but also things like bug bounty programs where people are encouraged to look at software. And we've seen, for example, the US government starting to uh, take that rather more seriously and centralize the process, which is all good. But how does that fit in then with this idea of threat modeling that you came up with back in as a 2014, wasn't it? Yes, and, and you know, wasn't wasn't my idea to start threat modeling. Threat modeling was an established uh, practice, um, but I think where threat modeling fits in with these programs and within pen testing is, I, I would look at it more from an engineering perspective, right? So. Think of the engineer or the architect who is building a system who have who has full knowledge of all of the intricacies of how the components are built, what technologies they're built with, what kind of data they're handling, how that data is being transmitted uh, from one place to another. And with that mindset, try and identify the security flaws in that design. So what a pen tester sees is really just the outside attack surface or maybe the inside attack surface from a particular perspective, but they very, very rarely see the entire thing and and they don't necessarily understand how the whole thing hangs together. So what threat modeling aims to do is to Firstly, expose that design, expose that architecture. Let's have a look at how is this whole thing hanging together and then try and identify what are the, uh, the security threats and the security countermeasures to that, uh, to that process. And to explain this, I think the, the, the best uh, methodology or, or framework for threat modeling that I've heard is from uh, Adam Shostak, who calls it the, the four questions of threat modeling which really nicely illustrate what it's all about, right? Step one is, what are we building? Let's get together and figure out what is this thing that that we're building or analyzing. Step two, what can go wrong? So what are the potential attacks to different parts of the components? Step three, what are we going to do about it? For each of those threats, we want to find a risk response. So are we going to do something about it? And if not, why not? Um, And if we're going to do something about it, how are we going to do it? And step four is, did we do a good job? So looking at the previous three steps, did we do enough here? Do we understand the system enough? Did we identify the correct number of threats? And did we go as far in depth as uh, as we needed to go? So it's really much more of a thinking process that happens before, ideally, before you start building something, but it can happen afterwards. Um, And this process can really help uh, inform the downstream security activities. So when you do start testing, you understand what the architect intended with this particular application. You understand what are the high-level threats, and your testing can now be aligned with that. So now you are not spending a day trying to test for a security vulnerability that has already been identified in the threat model and everybody knows it's there and they've already decided they're not going to do anything about it. There's no point in testing that. Um, and that's the kind of the value that threat modeling can can bring to testing. So to clarify then, you started working on the actual product, the um, Arius Risk product in 2014, but the idea itself, you attribute actually back as far as 1999 to uh, some work being done at Microsoft. Is that right? 
Absolutely, yeah. I think Microsoft did some pioneering work on this. Um, there was also some good work by uh, Sigital, uh, who call it, or called it architectural risk analysis. Um, and Microsoft also released a number of books on the topic. Um, and I think a lot has been going on ar around the threat modeling space, but it's really only been you know, last year, the year before, where things have started to take off. You know, we've been seeing standards um, published by NIST, um, some documents by OWASP that are really now calling out threat modeling as not a strange esoteric thing that you may want to do, but a mainstream activity that needs to be part of secure software development. So how does it fit into this idea of shift left? And it might be worth taking a moment just to explain what the whole shift left concept is about. I think shift left uh, was coined by the static code analysis tools. So firstly, left and right here means uh, how early or how late something happens in a development process. So in the SDLC, the software uh, development process, the left-hand side, you'd have design, then you'd start building something, and then you'd start uh, testing it and verifying it. So you'd move from left to, to right there. And I believe when the only security testing tools that were in the market were around um, dynamic testing. So they were testing tools. They sat here on the right-hand side of the, of the development process. The new era of tools that came around were code analysis tools. So they were saying, hey, don't wait until your application is live before you start doing security activities on it, before you start testing it we can actually start allowing you to look at the code that you're using much earlier on into the cycle. And that's where they coined this term shift left. So don't do it on the right-hand side, shift left into the development, uh, development life cycle. And the reason this works is because the earlier you can identify these issues, the quicker you can get a fix out and the less costly it is to uh, to fix these kinds of issues. Uh, you know, when I was doing my pen testing, we'd see this time and again, where um, we'd the application was meant to go live on a Friday. We'd start the pen test on the Monday, and, you know, the, the report needs to be ready on a Wednesday. So the customer essentially has between Wednesday and Friday to figure out, are we going to fix these critical risk issues that the pen test has found, or are we just going to go live, uh, you know, with the uh, with a vulnerable product? So the further we could do this left, the earlier they could be aware of these issues, much better for uh, for everyone. And potentially, then you're reducing the number of vulnerabilities that get out into the wild, but you're also cutting your costs potentially quite significantly. Yeah, and there are costs not just in uh, in, in the time to fix, but you're also reducing costs in delays of getting a service live. Um, you know, and particularly in we see it in finance, but even online gaming. Um, you know, if 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 you're too slow to get to the market with your application and your competitor is there a few weeks before you that could be you know hundreds of thousands of uh, of pounds euros or dollars that you're that you're losing out on because of that so how then does the security testing practice evolve to include threat modeling and what would need to change as well for the developer to include that so i think for for security testing to include threat modeling is is really an easy an easy fix um because Testers right now, um, when I'm speaking from my experience, when I was doing testing, we had very little context about what we were testing, right? If, you, if you're logging onto a, a web app and you're meant to test 
Citibank.com, the context you have is the context you see. It's a bank. It allows me to do banking things, um, and those, therefore those are the kinds of functionalities that I that I need to test. So testers tend to go in almost blindly when they start doing these external uh, penetration tests um, or, or even vulnerability assessments. If instead they were handed a threat model that said, look, this is the inside out view of our system. This is how it all works on the back end, although you're only seeing this particular page on the on the front end this is what sits behind it and we have analyzed this from a security perspective these are the threats we've identified and these threats we really care about because if an if an attacker could uh, exploit a vulnerability uh, that exposed any of these threats um, we would be in a, in, a, in a lot of trouble these other threats we've also identified and we don't care about them because it doesn't matter if somebody um, exploits an, an issue here. We know that's not going to matter much to the business. We've got fixes in plan, uh, in, 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 or fixes planned, um, or you know we're going to take some other risk decision. But right now, those are not a priority for us. If I were handed that kind of document as a penetration tester, that would give me an immense amount of context to understand, right, where do I focus my effort now? What do I start testing and, and how do I start testing it? So it certainly gives them a head start. But what do you have to do then at the threat modeling layer to ensure that the information that you have is is accurate and works in all these different scenarios? The team doing threat modeling um, and what we see is that's sometimes the engineering team with some help from security and sometimes it's a dedicated uh, security team. What they need to do is essentially analyze the system and go through these four steps that I mentioned earlier. Now, they, they will do this using a, a more um, methodical approach. Um, they could use a tool you know, like ours, Arius Risk, that kind of helps them through this approach. But there are um, well-established threat modeling methodologies. If they wanted to go for a completely manual process, they could do that. Um, and those four steps would be what are we building? They need to understand what they are analyzing. They need to identify what are the threats, what can go wrong, what are we going to do about it, and did we do a good job? So that's essentially what a threat modeling role would do to, to come out with a threat model. And the, um, the deliverable that they would have would ideally be a list of prioritized threats on these are the things we found, these things matter, these things don't. And these are the countermeasures that we want to apply to each of them. So we, we intend to fix this or we don't. And this is how we intend to fix this if we do intend to, to do so. So why then is NIST recommending threat modelling? And you mentioned this earlier on, but uh, there's this idea then of it will become part of standard practice, presumably. And also the... Um strictures or recommendations that are being placed on software developers in the US through the executive order uh, 14028 uh, is another thing which potentially is going to put more emphasis on this. Yes, and fantastic that NIST has included this as step one in their recommended guidelines for secure software. Um, I, I'm I'm a bit surprised that it's taken this long, really, because I've, I've been working in threat modeling for some time now. So it just surprises me that we've We've managed to build software um, up to where we are now 
and threat modeling hasn't been an accepted part of the practice. You know, it doesn't mean that everybody ha- that that nobody's been doing it. It just means that it hasn't been that part of that baseline. And the great part about what NIST has done is essentially make it part of the baseline. That this is essentially now what you need to do as a minimum to start building uh, secure software. Yeah, so that, that helps to establish then that if you're claiming your software is secure and you haven't done this, you know, an auditor or a penetration tester could start to ask questions, quite hard questions as to why you've not done that step. Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, it's not just um, auditors from uh, from other parties. This is also something that will help a the vendor customer relationship you know if i go and buy some some software from someone i'd like to see their threat model you know i don't expect their their uh, their software to be completely free of every single security flaw that exists but i do want to understand what am i buying right what am i buying into and if they can show me they have done threat modeling at least i can see they have reached this minimum bar of uh, of good practice for security and I can be informed about what am I what am I taking on from from my side from a security perspective. And what about the executive order? What sort of impact is that going to have on development practice? So if we look at some of the other NIST guidelines and the way they have impacted um, software security and uh, and application development, um, it, it tends to have a cascading effect. So you know the the first place where it has an impact is anybody selling into the federal government uh, in in the US. So uh, any federal government agency purchasing software, they're going to start looking for those NEST uh, requirements. So any suppliers uh, to the federal government are going to need to meet those those NEST NEST requirements. The next step is usually that other entities will refer to that document and they will make it a standard so uh, you know this document right now is it's not a standard it's a recommended minimum set of requirements so the next step would would it would be for it to change from being a recommended uh, set of uh, set of practices to actually being a required set and this will come down to you know different agencies picking this up and saying right you know we're going to do this. Threat modeling must be done. It's not an optional uh, step. And the rest of the steps in the uh, in the NIST guidelines will also be must-haves and not should-haves. And then those tend to have an, another, you know, a knock-on effect uh, throughout the industry because NIST is, although it's a U.S. standard, you know, we've seen this referenced everywhere. Um, even private companies in Spain um, would use NIST as the... Um, as the guideline to understand where do they set the bar for security, where do they set the, gar- the, the bar for quality. Um, so we would expect that to have a knock-on effect into the rest of the industry as they start adopting it. And you're talking about this being relevant in federal purchasing and potentially as other government agencies in other countries may follow NIST as well as a, a standard for best practice. But uh, you recently actually started to add uh, support for scanning critical national infrastructure applications with your tools. So is that something that you see as being quite important here, that this type of application, this type of development actually is probably where some of these tools will get used first of all, because you know the risks downstream if they do break? You know, if we look at companies that are already doing threat modeling, or let's say not companies, but organizations that are already doing threat modeling, they typically have a high requirement for security, 
right? They, they care enough about security that they really want to understand what are the threats of this complex system that, that I'm designing. Um, so for critical national infrastructure, um, infrastructure in general, um, and even, you know, IoT, uh, these are areas where you really need to understand how the system works from a security perspective before you start building and deploying it. And one of the reasons is because they have a foot in the real world. Um, you know, when you're building a pure web application and you have a flaw in it, okay, it's going to take you some time to fix it, but it's all software. When you're talking about uh, CNI as well as infrastructure and IoT, if there are problems, sometimes those are problems, you know, in a chip or on a board or in a sensor that have, that has been inst installed in a thousand different uh, locations in a in a chemical plant. Fixing those kinds of problems is much more costly than than rolling a uh, a software update. So you know, I think that's where we've actually seen threat modeling. Uh, almost lead uh, the the software industry because they need to identify these design time issues, these architectural flaws much earlier on um, than uh, than a, a pure software based company. Uh, well, indeed, and again, it's to do with the requirement there and the the urgency of the requirement and the difficulty of the fix. But more broadly, do you think that you will see uh, this being something that requires organisational or cultural change in order to make it um, a key part of the development process? That's been a common barrier for application security or software security in general. Um, you know, if you if you bring out a new platform or a new tool that makes all web applications ten times as fast and it doesn't cost anybody anything to deploy, it's going to be adopted like wildfire. Um, when you come to an engineering organization and you say we need you to do this new security activity. It's going to take you time. It's going to give you results further down the road. And the benefit of it is that you're building a more secure application, which we can't always properly measure uh, how much security you have or how much more secure you are. That, that's a bit more of a complex sell, you know, when you come to engineers with, with, with that uh, kind of, of a proposal. So I think it does require a, a change there. But I think there's also a, a growing trend uh, amongst engineers uh, that want to know about security. You know, um, they, I think engineers want to build quality products. And if privacy and security are part of what a quality product is, then they will drag that knowledge into their teams and they will drag those new activities into their daily, um, their daily work so that they can build a quality product that is secure and that respects um, privacy laws. Is this more than simply an information security or software development issue? And does it need wider change in organizational culture? Y yes, it does. It needs a, a change in, uh, in culture within the development teams. Um, and it also needs the development teams to understand a bit more about what an attacker would do. Um, so this is something that is not not very obvious to engineers. You know, engineers are often writing code, designing systems. Uh, 
with with the north star in mind of i need to get this piece of new functionality online and it needs to work in these ways what they don't consider is that some users of that functionality might be malicious actors who are not just entering the wrong keystrokes or uh, you know making errors here and there they're deliberately trying to subvert that functionality so it requires engineers to firstly understand what that mindset looks like that mindset of the attacker who is going to try and and subvert functionality and try and uh, break an application to gain access to data or or unauthorized resources um and that you know that's a um i think it's something that engineers will be th- th- they would enjoy taking that on and it's certainly the feedback we've got when we work with engineers um, you know teaching them threat modeling or introducing them to uh, to our tool that helps them threat model um, you know they want to build quality software and if they can include security in that if they can you know take privacy requirements into account when building quality software they they'll do that uh, definitely so it comes back again to providing those tools to enable them to improve the quality of what they're developing and make something that is ultimately more robust. Well, Stephen DeVries, uh, thank you very much for your time. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back on Wednesday, November the 17th, when we'll be looking at the question of digital identity. Over a billion people worldwide have no way to prove their ID, so can digital help? I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on our past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thank you for listening.